Tanner, and welcome to the Oxano Podcast. Oxano is a worship service for college students and young adults that takes place weekly during the school year at Dawson Family of Faith. If you're ever in Birmingham, Alabama on a Tuesday night, we hope you'll join us as we worship through song, prayer, and the Word. Thanks for listening. Tonight's scriptures reading is in Jonah 1, 1-3. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. So there are incredible missionary stories. I don't know if you all are uh, biography nerds or like if you enjoy watching biopics or like we've got people who love the crown, right? And you're able to see these long form series on particular historical individuals. But like I absolutely love hearing some from what the Lord has done in and through the lives of some of our missionaries. And so like you go through, you look at William Carey, the father of the modern missionary movement who in England was called to be able to go over to India. And as he was there for an extended period of time, the Lord was able to use him in a significant way. Or you're able to see, hear about Lottie Moon. Now, if you grew up Southern Baptist, you know our annual Christmas offering, right? The Lottie Moon Christmas offering. This woman stood tall at four foot three and she was from Virginia, but the Lord called her to be able to go to China. And that is where she was able to spend decades living and serving and reaching hard to reach people groups there in China. Or Yvette Ahrens, who we saw the video of here just a moment ago before Bree came and read our scripture reading. Yvette is a native-born Jamaican who is a U.S. citizen, but was a Southern Baptist missionary to Trinidad, who then God called to go over into Thailand. And so the Lord has used her as our first deaf missionary to an affinity group for deaf people all across the world. And then God called her back here to be able to train up more who can use sign language to be able to share the gospel with people who are often overlooked or disenfranchised. There are really good missionary stories. And then there's Jonah. You go through and you look at Jonah as like the anti-missionary story. And tonight, as we come together, we're starting a brand new series, Reckoning and Restoration, where we're walking through some of the minor prophets in the Old Testament. The minor prophets you might or might not be familiar with. I would venture to bet, if you were like me, especially when I was going through college and young adulthood, that it is probably like the least touched part of your Bible, now, it's probably the place where the pages are the most crisp, right? And where you have not spent a great deal of time there. And it can be scary. It can be far removed. It can be difficult to engage with because of the subject matter or with the form that it's coming through. But over the course of these next four weeks, we're gonna be looking at select minor prophets. And these are minor prophets, not because it's, like, it's not like the minor leagues, okay? It's not like you got the majors, and these just guys, they didn't work up to the level of like Isaiah, Jeremiah, or Ezekiel. That, that's not it. These are minor just in that they are shorter. Originally in the Hebrew canon, they were brought together as the book of the 12. There are 12 of these minor prophets. And so over the course of the next four weeks, including tonight, we're going to be looking each week at one of the minor prophets in a, in a hope to make them more accessible for you as you're going through and trying to study this portion of God's word 
But also what I think you will find is that there is so much here in the Minor Prophets that will help to make sense of the things that are going on today and how you, as a college student and young adult, can live and walk faithfully here in this world. And so tonight, uh, we have something, we don't always do this, but every now and then we give you guys a listening guide to go along. I know a lot of you are avid note takers. And so we just helped you out a little bit. The scripture's not gonna be on the screen tonight. The scripture's gonna be in your listening guides. We're gonna have blanks that you can fill in on the screen. And don't worry for all my type A people, we're gonna cover them all, all right? And if I miss one, just raise your hand, shout it out, and I'll make sure that you get your notes filled in, okay? So as we go through, let's give just a little bit of background on Jonah. You see it at the top. that He prophesied during the reign of this king called Jeroboam II. He's mentioned in 2 Kings. So this isn't the only place that Jonah pops up in the course of the biblical history. But what we're able to see that Jonah, when you look, like we said, in the Minor Prophets, the book of the 12, Jonah is unique in that the rest of the prophets are words from the prophets. That they are writing messages to people, to nations, to kings. But this is not the words of a prophet to people, places, kings, but rather this is a story about the prophet. And beyond that, this is a story about God himself. And y'all, so as we look at the story of Jonah tonight, my hope and prayer is that you will not let your familiarity with this particular Bible story stand in the way of true understanding. Don't check out on me. Don't think like, yes, I did the coloring sheet back in Sunday school every single year. And like, I could get up here and tell the story of Jonah. You probably could. But my hope is, is that we come through and do a 30,000 foot view. Look at the book of Jonah. We are covering the entire book in 35 minutes or less here tonight, okay? Buckle up. Let's get ready to go. We are gonna see here, there are unexpected turns in each chapter. This book is dripping with irony, things that you would not expect, And things that you would expect to happen don't happen at all. And you can see in the course of your outline, I was greatly helped by this resource called The Bible Project. If y'all have ever seen any of those videos on YouTube, my goodness, go down the rabbit hole when you get home and start watching some of those as they lay out the entire book, like entire books of the Bible and helping you to see how all of the larger pieces fit together. And in going through, you're able to see this large structure of, there are four chapters in Jonah. You have chapters one and three are Jonah with people and chapters two and four are Jonah with God and dialogue that he is having with the divine. So we're going through it and we're gonna be starting in chapter one, Jonah and the sailors, Jonah and the sailors. And so we see this at the very beginning, Jonah's commissioning and flight, write it in, Jonah's commissioning and flight, okay? Let's pick it up in Jonah chapter one, verse one. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it for their evil has come up before me. Okay, so what would we expect right here? God is giving a message to his prophet. Rise, go, tell this message to these people. And so what would we expect? We would expect the prophet to be obedient, right? We would expect the prophet to be able to go and to do what God has said. After all, this is a part of his office. This is a part of his relationship with God. That's what we would expect. But that's not what happens Verse three, but Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish. And I can't say Tarshish very much, so I'm just gonna call it Tartown, okay? And so like, we're going through, he's getting ready to go to Tartown and he is going in the complete opposite direction from the presence of the Lord. Why? Why on earth is the prophet of God who has just received a message of God, a lot of you in here are like, if God would just give me a message, If God would just tell me what he wants me to do, oh God, I would walk lockstep. I would go wherever you tell me to go. Jonah's proof that you wouldn't, maybe. 
And as you're going through, he is given direction to go. And as he is given that, he turns and goes to the complete other direction. We pick it up in verse 3. He went down to Joppa. He found a ship going to Tartown. So he paid the fare, went down to it to go with them to Tartown, away from the presence of the Lord. Jonah's fleeing from the presence of God. And he's going down. He finds an equivalent of our long-distance ocean liners. I mean, there is a monetary investment. It's not like he's just buying a bus ticket. Like, he has taken a great personal financial hit to be able to go in the opposite direction. And I can't help but think that maybe when Jonah goes down to the docks and he sees that there is this ship ready to be able to take him in the other direction, for him not to be able to see, like, maybe this is an odd sense of God's providence. Well, like, if God really wanted me to go to Tarshish, then, like, he wouldn't have made it this easy for me to, like, run in the other direction. Like, he, this boat wouldn't be here. Maybe, maybe this boat is here, and it's like God saying, oh, maybe I can go this way. Or like, oh, it would have been a lot more difficult for me to run out of being in God's will for me to be able to go over here. And so like, maybe, yeah, this is what I'm gonna do. And so he pays the fare, he gets on the boat and he starts going. And I think what we need to be able to see is that there will always be a ship to Tarshish. If you're fleeing from God, write it in. It will often be convenient. It will often be convenient. There might be an attractive option leading you away from where God is calling to you. And I'll tell you this, open doors can be a way for you to be able to test and approve God's will, but they are not the way for you to be able to test God's will for your life. Just because there's an open door doesn't mean that you should walk in it. Just because there's an open door on the boat to Tarshish doesn't mean that you should go in there. We need to be going first and foremost to God and his word And we need to see what has he revealed to us. But if you're trying to figure out if it's what grad school you're supposed to go to, what job you're supposed to transition to, most likely God is not going to open up the heavens and tell you, go there. It's a wisdom issue. And for you to be able to walk in wisdom in a way that honors him. But if it is a way for you further down the line, you're married to a guy, you're married to a gal. And God's word explicitly says that you are supposed to be faithful. You are supposed to be one flesh with this other person. But my goodness, it, it wouldn't, I mean, they're like really into me over here. Like this, this other coworker that I have, this other person that I met over here, like it, it should be a lot more difficult. Like if God didn't want me to have this or to walk in this, no. No, it will often be convenient to be able to go in a way that is opposite from what God has declared to us in his word. But God is sovereign. And even over Jonah's attempt to thwart his plan, Jonah, he's on the boat. He's headed to Tarshish. He's with the sailors. And then a storm comes up. So this is where we see the second movie right here, that Jonah's with the pagan sailors. God sends a huge storm upon the sea. Jonah's out on the waters and he is down in the boat fast asleep. They're up on the deck, the pagan sailors, pagans, they just don't follow the God of Israel. They're up and they're crying out to their gods. They're throwing stuff overboard. They're trying to figure out any way how they can keep this boat afloat. But Jonah, he was fast asleep, not phased at all, no sleepless night. And I'll tell you this, y'all, this is a dangerous place to be. Not on a ship in the middle of an ocean, which would honestly terrify me to the core. But to be running from the presence of God without any hint of conviction or remorse. That is a dangerous place to be. 
And so the pagans, they're up there on the ship deck and they're casting lots. They're rolling dice, trying to figure out who is responsible for this that has come upon them. And the lot fell on Jonah. They wake him up, they drag him up, they interrogate him. And they say, why have you brought this upon us? Who are you? And then we get to one verse nine and follow along. And he, this is Jonah, said to them, I am a Hebrew. I fear the Lord the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. Again, not what you would expect. There's no backpedaling. There's no remorse. There's no repentance. There's no saying, yep, you're right, it's me. Let's turn the ship around and go back and everything will be fine. No, he is obstinate, he is proud, and he is pointing to his religious resume on who he is. And y'all, what he is saying And the way that he is living is completely out of step with each other. Like Jonah is what we would call a hypocrite, right? Like Jonah, what he is going to do, there's a difference between what he is saying and how he is living. His words aren't matching up with his steps. And as we go through and look, we need to write this down. It is possible to profess belief in God while denying him by how we live. Row, row. It is possible for us to say certain things, but then to deny God by how we live. Jonah is saying all of the right things while he is headed in the complete opposite direction of God's will according to God's word. So they deliberate how to calm the storm, and Jonah says, throw me overboard. And going through, this is one of those points of familiarity that I had with the passage that I was like, oh, Jonah, he's just being so self-sacrificial. Like He's just wanting to be able to help preserve and take care of the pagan sailors and everything like that. And the longer that I was thinking about it and the more that I was reading from people who are way smarter than me, they're saying that though this seems noble at first, it's actually utterly selfish and that he would rather die than fulfill God's mission. And not just that, he would want to take down as many people on the way as he could Because by them, not him jumping overboard, he could have done that, but he wanted them, the pagan sailors, the people who were not a part of God's people, he wanted them to throw him overboard. He wanted his blood on their hands. And he says, throw me overboard. But the pagans, they're not doing what you would expect either. The pagan sailors in verse 16 actually respect life more than him and they hesitantly throw him in. But you see the men, verse 16, feared the Lord exceedingly. They offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And this isn't to their pagan gods. This is to the all caps Lord. This is Yahweh, the God of Israel, that they are going through this and even... Even in Jonah's attempts to run, even in Jonah's attempts to thwart the message, even in Jonah's hard-hearted pride, even in Jonah's hardness, the hard-hearted repented. The pagan sailors call out upon the name of the Lord in spite of Jonah and him trying to sabotage what God was doing. And so as Jonah is descending to his watery grave, God sends a great fish as his marine life support, his transportation, and his prayer bench all rolled up into one. And so this is where we start to see in chapter two, Jonah and the great fish. It's one of those things, the Bible never says it's a whale. We can infer from that, but you know, Jonah and the whale is Jonah and the big fish. Jonah and the great fish. He's going through, and this is where we see Jonah's first prayer, where Jonah having received God's word and running, is now 
coming and talking to God. Verse 17. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. And then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish. And y'all, I want you to see this, that even in his deliberate fleeing, that God spared the wayward Jonah. That in God's providence, he spared the rebellious prophet. He spared the wandering messenger in a very miraculous and kind of one-time only event kind of way, right? That he is going through right here. And Jonah, while he's in the fish, he admits that his backsliding has been foolish. But if you go back and actually read his prayer in chapter two, there is no sign that he is repentant. There is no sign that he is sorry or remorseful over what he's done. But he comes and he declares, salvation belongs to the Lord. That's how he ends his prayer. And then he is vomited out onto the beach. That Jonah, in chapter 3, is now going to Nineveh. It's taken him a couple of chapters on a pretty unusual detour But now Jonah is going to Nineveh and we see Jonah's recommissioning and his obedience. So we saw first Jonah's commissioning and his flight or his disobedience, but now we see Jonah's recommissioning and his obedience. And so after the regurgitation, the Lord extends a recommission. He's been vomited out and now he's saying, vamos, right, let's go. We're going and we see in chapter three, verse one, Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. And so Jonah went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Did you notice how the calling is the exact same? It's as if God copy-pasted from chapter 1 over here in chapter 3. And what we want to be able to see is this, that God's word never changes. Write it in. God's word never changes. And finally, something happens in the book of Jonah that we expect. The prophet obeys, right? The prophet does what God's word says. And it's obedience to the unchanging word of God. And so maybe some of you here tonight have been running. Maybe some of you have been going from what you know to be obedience to the Lord, not from these like subjective things of like that God has said that you need to walk in wisdom on, but very clear things in God's word that he says for you to be able to walk and to follow me according to my word, you need to be in these steps and you've been running, you've been wandering. I would encourage you just go and do what you know to do. If you are, if you have followed Jesus If you have given your life to him, but you've gone through a period of wandering, if you don't know what to do or if it's right or wrong, consult the scriptures, submit it to the body for interpretation and walk in grace-filled obedience. When you don't know what to do, do what you know to do and follow and walk and step with the Lord. And so Jonah right here, he's obedient, but obedient to the minimum. The absolute minimum. This is where we see Jonah, where he was with the pagan sailors. Now Jonah is with the pagan Ninevites. And so in chapter three, verse four, Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey. And he called out, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. 
That's it. That's it. Jonah goes into Nineveh with an eight-word sermon. Eight words in English, and y'all, it's only five in Hebrew, right? He goes in with a five-word sermon. Yet 40 days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Y'all, this is like the obstinate teenager right? That when mom or dad says to go clean your room, right? And you go in there and you pick up a sock and then you like put it in its drawer and you go about doing what you were doing. And mom or dad comes in like, what are you doing? We told you to clean your room. You're like, well, mom, dad, technically like I did clean my room. It's in a cleaner state than it was before. You didn't specify the extent to which I was supposed to clean my room, right? You're laughing because that was you. That's what Jonah's doing right here. Like, go, arise, tell Nineveh, this city of the evil that has come up before me and that they should turn. And Jonas goes in, he says, and yet 40 days in Nineveh, yet 40 days and it will be overthrown. It's almost like he's trying to sabotage the message. It's almost like he's trying to do the absolute bare minimum of what he could do to fulfill God so that he could get off of his back so that he could go back to doing what it was that he wanted to do and so that only God's people would be in the clear and so that the Ninevites that he hated would get what was coming to them. It's not what you would expect from God's prophet, but what happens next, you wouldn't expect either. Verse five, and the people of Nineveh believed God. The people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least. Are you kidding me? That even in spite of a disobedient wayward prophet who comes preaching a five-word sermon just with judgment, like that this is happening, no way to escape it, no way to get out. It's bad news, bad news, bad news. But God, even through this messed up messenger Write it in, God's sovereign plans will come to pass. Even on our best days and on our worst, when we try our hardest and when apparently someone doesn't try at all, his plans will come to pass. And God responds. God responds. Look at this in verse 10, chapter three. When God saw what they did, how the people of Nineveh turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them. And he did not do it. We need to be able to see this. God both grants and relents over our repentance. God both grants and relents over our repentance. What, what is repentance, right? That's, that's a big churchy word. Maybe it's one that in your tradition you use, or maybe you just associate it with like, Sinners in the hands of an angry God, right? If you read that in literature class or something like that and you had a teacher dunk on it, which it's better than what they give it credit for, right? Or you hear just like a street preacher that's out there just like, repent, you know, kind of thing. And so you have all these negative associations. You hear the word repent and you're just like, ah. Repent is a good word that is worth using. Biblically, repent, it means to turn, to change your direction. Like if you were to visualize it spatially, you are walking one way and to repent is to stop and to turn around and to go in a different direction. That is to repent. 
And so the nation of Nineveh, they were going on this one way in this one direction. And then this message comes to them from God through an imperfect messenger. And they believe him. They turn. God granted them repentance. And because they repented, he relented over the disaster, over the reckoning that was going to be coming on that particular city and over that particular people. Repentance is something that God gives. It's kind of crazy to think about, y'all. When we think about repentance is something that God gives, it's not something that just naturally arises out of us. It's not something that we just kind of finally realize, but it's something that God opens our eyes to. I mean, we see this in Acts chapter 11. We're going into the New Testament here. We talk about this group of people. When they heard these things, they fell silent and they glorified God saying, then to the Gentiles, God has granted repentance that leads to life, that God grants He gifts, he bestows, he causes to come forth this repentance. Or 2 Timothy 2.25, that the man of God correcting his gentleness, his opponents with gentleness, God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth. That this repent, and this is something that we pray for. If you have a brother or sister, if you have a friend, a family member, a coworker, a classmate who does not know Jesus, what do we pray God, would you open their eyes? God, would you help them to see that the way that they are living is not good? It will end in suffering. It will end in death. God, help them to see. Break into their lives. God, help them. Make them new. This repentance is something that God gifts. It's something that he grants. And when we walk in repentance, it's something that he relents. That even here in the Old Testament and then pointing forward into the New, we'll unpack a little bit later. But that the repentance, God grants it and God relents over it. And y'all, this is a missionary's dream. Can you imagine? Right? William Carey, Lottie Moon, Yvette Ahrens, like going through. It's like if the prime minister of Thailand, where Yvette Ahrens was serving, if she came and she preached a message and Everyone, starting with the prime minister all the way down, where it stopped everything that was going on nationally and revival broke out. Nationwide sweeping revival. Stop everything, like literally everything. This message will utterly change the trajectory of every single one of our lives and we will escape judgment. Stop what you're doing. And this is who we are now calling upon. Can you imagine like being a part of something like that? And you just be ecstatic, right? For God to move in such this magnificent and miraculous way. That's what we would expect for Jonah to do. But y'all, this is Jonah and nothing that we expect to happen happens. And so we get to the last chapter of Jonah, Jonah chapter four. Jonah, previously, he was in the belly of the fish. And now Jonah, he's up on a hill. And here is Jonah's second prayer, Jonah chapter four, verse one. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly. And he was angry, of course. I mean, this is hellish. And we'll see why. Verse two, he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. Okay, listen up. This is it. We are about to find dramatic irony, right? At the beginning, we have the nagging question, why is he running? Why is the prophet not doing what God said? Why on earth is Jonah operating this way? And we are about to find out here at the very end of the book. 
This is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you were a gracious and merciful God, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Jonah ran because he knew the saving power of God and he did not want the Ninevites to have access to it. Through his nationalistic prejudice and his desire for exclusivity and being an elite, it was in his mind for Israel and the chosen people from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob only. And he knew this message, if others were able to get wind of it, that God would save. And he wanted none of that. And so listen to this. He's saying, effectively, God, I know who you are. Yeah, you can wipe people out, but you've revealed yourself. In places like Exodus 34, the Lord, the Lord, merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. I knew you'd forgive them and I would have no part in it. Yeah, you brought me back, but I thought I could sabotage it. Nothing I do is working. Just kill me now. He says as much in verse three. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. Jonah would rather die than see other people come to new life. Like how much do you have to hate someone for them not to have this message for them not to be brought into the family. And in verse four, the Lord said, do you do well to be angry? Do you do well to be angry? And you've heard me say this before, I'll say it again. When God asks a question in the Bible, it's not that he doesn't know the answer. God is omniscient. He is all-knowing. God, whenever he is asking a question, it's not to find out new information. It's to get us to give a voice to the things that are happening in here. He is trying to draw something out. He did it in the garden with Adam and Eve. Where are you? He knew where they were, but he was trying to draw them out of their hiding. And here with Jonah, he's asking, do you do well to be angry? And there's no answer given. He's just walking to the hill and he's mad. Because write it in, God acts consistently through the ages. That he was the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is the God who will relent over repentance. He is the God who is bringing in those who were far off and bringing them in. That yes, Exodus 19.6, that Israel was supposed to be a kingdom of priests, a royal nation, but not just so that they could hoard God's love and God's favor over here and keep it away from the rest of the world, but so that they could be a kingdom of priests and being able to share it and to show it with the rest of the world so that we would eventually be able to see people from every tribe, tongue, and people and nation surrounded the throne and coming together, giving glory to the one. And so coming through here, God, he acts consistently through the ages, but Jonah is just pouting. Just the pouting prophet, verse five. Jonah went out of the city, sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He's tailgating. He's up there, he set up the tent. He's overlooking Nineveh. 
and he sits under the shade until he could see what would become of the city, popcorn in hand, praying for perdition. Just like maybe they're gonna repent over their repentance. I've seen it happen before. Maybe they'll be wishy-washy. Maybe it didn't take. Maybe it's not happening. And so he is just up there waiting and waiting to see if maybe against all odds, God was actually gonna rain down fire on these people that he hated. But we see in verse six, now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade upon his head. And we're like, what on earth is going on? That there's this plant that God brings up, that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. And so Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. Finally, the prophet is happy because he's getting an elephant ear leaf, giving him some shade, right? That he's going through and he is delighted. And then verse seven, but when dawn came up the next day, so I guess some, nothing happened that day. So Jonah goes to sleep. He wakes up again, comes out here, and is like, okay, maybe today they're going to repent of their repentance. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. And y'all, what you need to be able to see, this God is the one who controls the great and giant sea creatures and also the smallest of worms. And in the big and the small and over all of the created order, God has control and exercises dominion. And so he comes. And when the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And Jonah asked again that he might die and said, it is better for me to die than to live again. He asks to die. He has no regard for the lives of the Ninevites. He has no regard for the lives of the pagan sailors. He has no regard for his own life. But God asks a few more questions. Verse nine, but God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And Jonah said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And now he's talking back to God. He's talking back to the one who hurls storms and sends winds, the one who commands great fish and tiny worms. And this God says in verse 10, and the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor and you didn't make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left? And also much cattle. And that's how the book of Jonah ends. Curtain falls or the credits start rolling and we're all just left there like, what happens? It ends with a question and God talking about cows. And we are left and we are confronted with a question. God says, you feel sorry for this plant that was here one day and then gone the next. Like, I understand the care and the concern that you have over that plant. But this is an argument from the lesser to the greater. And he said, if you have care and concern over that plant that was just here for one day and that you didn't do anything over, how much more should I have care and concern over the 120,000 people and all of the animals that are down here in Nineveh? Do you do well to be angry? It ends awkwardly with a question and no answer. And Jonah is meant to be a mirror for us, you see? 
Because sometimes we write it in, we sit waiting for a change when we're the ones needing to change. We're the ones sitting up on a hill wanting this or that to change when we are up there and God is saying, look in the mirror. There are some things that we need to work on in here. And as we are going through in the book of Jonah, everyone in the story needed a change. The pagan sailors needed a change. The pagan Ninevites needed a change. Jonah needed to change. The only one who didn't was God, whose ways and word are unchanging. Everyone needs to change. And I love the way James A. Sanders, he says, like a lot of times, especially when we look in the Old Testament, we look for like models of morality, like dare to be a Daniel, you know, or different things like that. Or like, let's look at all, especially like, you know, we want to have these certain character traits that we want to be brave like Queen Esther and all this, that, and the other. But rather than look at James A. Sanders, this most biblical texts must be read not by looking in them models for morality, but by looking in them for mirrors for identity. Where am I in this story? And we can look at the book of Jonah and it confronts us. Like we see the worst in ourselves. We, when we look at this, we are Jonah. We are Nineveh. We are in need of salvation. We were apart from God. We were enemies from God, disobedient, led astray, foolish, slaves to various passions and pleasures. Enemies of God, but write this in, aren't you glad that God loves his enemies? That God loved the wayward Jonah. We sang it earlier, always chasing after us. And if Jonah isn't the story, if it's anything else, it's the God who chases after us. And it's the God who will pursue us. It's the God who will go to great lengths to grant and relent over repentance. And we see this most clearly in the person and work of Jesus. That even though Jonah was written hundreds of years before the Messiah would come, Jonah is a book about Jesus. The book of the 12, these minor prophets, you will hear every week up here how they are pointing forward to Jesus because you see God has sent the true and better Jonah in the person of his son, in the person of Christ. Because the true and better Jonah obeyed the will of the Father and came by his own will. And he preached a sermon that was far longer than five words about this little thing called the kingdom of God. And rather than going up on a hill and hoping for judgment to be rained down on other people, he went up on a hill and received the judgment of God in our place. The true and better Jonah threw himself into the sea of God's wrath and then spent three days, not in a great fish, but in a borrowed tomb. And he wasn't vomited onto dry ground, but he rose again victorious over sin, death, and the devil. And Jesus Christ has saved us. And we should want to see him save others. We should repent and believe. We should turn and we should trust. For as the book of Jonah shows us, we have a God who pursues. We have a God whose heart is for the nations. We have a God who, as Paul would say in Romans, and while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's the lengths to which he loved us and is bringing us back. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the book of Jonah. And God, that that even in spite of attempts to 
to sidetrack the message, to sabotage the message, God, that you are still sovereign and that you still work and that you still save. And so, God, I pray that you would help us to walk in obedience, God, that you would fill us with love for those that are around us. God, that you would help us to be changing into the image of your son and helping others, showing others, pointing others to the only place where they can do that, and that's in and through the gospel. Through what Christ has come, Christ has died, Christ has risen, and Christ will come again. We thank you for this message of hope that we have. And we thank you, God, for pursuing us. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Oxano podcast. If you want more information on the songs that we sing at Oxano, you can find us on Spotify at Oxano Songs We Sing. If you have more questions about what it means to follow Jesus or about next steps in following him, please email us at connect at dawsonchurch.org. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week.